Hello and welcome to Taking the Liberty. Today I am joined by an award-winning recipe writer who has written countless incredible cookery books along with his renowned blog, Rocket and Squash. Today we are discussing changing career in your 30s, how to get into food writing and what it's really like to release a cookbook. Along with countless life lessons, he really should be a motivational speaker. Please join me in welcoming Ed Smith to the podcast. You get it all, she's at your back and call when you're taking the liberty. Yes, you're taking the liberty when you're talking with liberty. I am unbelievably grateful that you've taken the time to join me on the podcast, especially on the day of your new wonderful cookbook, Crave, that's been released into the world. Thank you for joining. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. I guess that's the perfect way to kick us off. Yep. Crave. It's such a unique concept of a book, Food Cravings, which I suppose will resonate with the nation. After writing such a plethora of books, including eat like a local um on the side and of course the borough market cook borough market cookbook how have you found the writing process of this one because i suppose it's really personal cravings yeah good good points the book is called crave recipes arranged by flavor to suit your mood and appetite and um it's a cookbook principally um and but what i try and do is to write cookbooks that are hopefully useful for home cooks to have done thinking for them, got the best chance of having a meal that satisfies them. And I was trying to think of a way, that, an original idea to structure the book with. So I basically stumbled across the idea, maybe the best way to work out what to cook in a way that definitely satisfies you when there are so many ideas out there and so many recipes on the internet and so many books, was to just like strip it all back and say, what are you craving? What flavour are you craving? And I realised that I could kind of isolate six different flavour profiles um, which at any one time I think one of those flavours would be the dominant thing that you want. And that flavour might be affected or caused, the reason why you want it might be caused by weather. Mm -hmm. like today we're recording this for the first day in ages, blue sky, nice and hot. The last three weeks have been horrific and you definitely want different food today than I did yesterday. The six flavours are fresh and fragrant, tart and sour, chilli and heat, spiced and curried, rich and savoury, and cheesy and creamy. That's fascinating. I feel like I've missed one out there. You said that those cravings are personal, and, and, and actually what I realised was that I, I'm not trying to prescribe a recipe to a specific mood because my, my idea of comfort is going to be different to someone else's idea of comfort. You know, I might want roast chicken or chicken soup. Yeah. Someone else might want something that's got full of uh, heat or full of spice because that's the kind of the food that they recall from the happy times when they were younger or from a travel place. So, so that's it. No, but they are. They are genuinely all the different things that you would be craving at any different time. When you were doing any research, was there any science that surprised you about cravings? There was not a surprise, but the interesting thing is one of the things that lots, there's been lots of writing about comfort food and um, there's been a lot of lazy writing, lazy assumptions about comfort food being what I've already mentioned about the kind of, I guess, classic kind of Western tropes, whether it's uh, tomato soup or or roast chicken and also people always talk about like they wanting to wallow in like ice cream and stuff like that actually the actual science suggests that many more people will go for something that's fresh and fragrant yeah. like a salad because they know that it's going to make them feel better sooner and it does so actually it's not the obvious things that we always think about and not actually probably what most people do fingers crossed it goes down well and people like it oh no absolutely i've already had so many people message being like have you, have you seen ed's book 
Good. Yeah, it just, it sounds amazing and is something Thank that you. we all need. And also fascinating that when people think comfort, they go to a salad. I would love to have that logic. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I'd say it's definitely not logic that I always follow. But for example, when I'm hungover. Yes. What is your craving? Well, one of my first things in the, that I probably thought of when I was going through the recipe list that I thought I had to put this in there um, was a kind of a version of a, of a bun cha, bun cha, the sort of um, Vietnamese noodle salads. And mine, mine's not the Hanoi one, but um, with sort of pork patties. Amazing. And that's literally the last... I don't know six five out of the last six or seven years on something like the second or third of January when I'm pretty still you know down starting the year but hungover I, I just yeah. suddenly I just suddenly get a craving for the freshness of that um fragrance the, the, the sort of spice in it and so the lemon the lemongrass and things like that as, as well as the fresh herbs that kind of so maybe there is something in my body that occasionally says, do you, you know need what, something you need good for you. Yeah, or like even anything with ginger just to wake yeah. you up, I feel like, after you're hungover. Yes, yeah, 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 Shouts. definitely. Um, yeah. Amazing. Oh, well, I'm sure it's going gonna, it's gonna to go down so well. Um, Thank you. Amazing. So let's go back to the beginning. Um, before mm-hmm. you were this amazing award-winning food writer, I believe you retrained as a chef. Is that right? What were you doing mm. before? I did. So I was a corporate lawyer. I worked for six years in the city in a, one of the largest law firms. And then obviously there's like two years of training before that year as well. And I kind of got to, this is about 10 years ago when I changed career. And I've been writing a food blog, my blog Rocket and Squash, one and a half, two years. Yeah, whilst you were working as a lawyer. While I was working, I did that as a, it was very much a hobby. No aim to do anything else, no aim to change career it was a creative outlet in part I was working was working incredibly hard sort of 70 80 hour weeks standard and I've always loved food but I was finding myself at the end of the week having made no restaurant plans having not really thought what I was going to do at the weekend and I just thought you know what I really want to make sure I cook something new every weekend and I really want to make sure that I book the new restaurants that I'm telling everyone else to go to but in, instead finding myself on a Friday night when my mate saying guys what are we doing yeah oh we'll go to the pub and ending up at you know buying a pizza express for the pub and it's just like yeah. that's not what I enjoy and I was and you know people always turn to me and say oh what's the new restaurant to go to and I hadn't you know actually booked it so no you hadn't had the time I guess the organized nature of my mind was saying this is what you need to do and I loved it and about a year and a half into that I remember writing a blog post at like two o'clock in the morning having got home about 11 30 at night on a Thursday and thinking what, what am I doing? Like, I've got to get up for work in a few hours' time. Oh, my gosh. Was it a weekly thing? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I wrote thousands and thousands of words. Probably, in, you know, I was probably in the zone of working incredibly hard. But also, it was what I enjoyed. And I just sort of thought, you know what? You have, you have to work very hard in life, whatever you do. Yeah. I wasn't leaving a job because I wanted to chill out. I just realised that if you're going to work hard for another 30 years, then you should do it with a subject matter that you enjoy. And yeah, so I kind of started exploring how to, how to change. So that was really what sparked it, that you weren't enjoying it. So then you went into a job with just as long hours. Well, yeah, it's, I definitely haven't had a... I'm not sure the work-life balance is any better. I, um, I tra- retrained at Coaching College for six months. Um, Westminster Kingsway. Which... I trained there. Did you? Yeah, I did. Uh, did you do the diploma. full... Did you? What, the... Three, th- three six months. Three years. Right. Yeah, specialised in pastry. When um, were you there? God, I think I graduated like five years ago. After my time. <laughs> did you do the three years? No, it was it was that they did it in six. It's like a what's it called? I'm the name of it. But essentially, it was it was it was the fundamentals of your course put into six months, 
Um, wow. It was really fun. It, like when I say the fundamentals, that all the bits that you had to tick off over three years, the syllabus was there. Yeah. But it was such a small course, and actually, when I did it, there were only four people on it. We basically had. Um, do you remember Miranda? Yeah, yeah. Um, she was our course tutor, and oh, she's um, wonderful. And basically, after the first six weeks of doing like the necessary skills mm-hmm. and ticking off very rigidly, basically then just got a different animal at the start of each week. Brilliant. We were able to break, break it down and then cook things. Basically, it was a bit like ready to cook. So long as that we covered off a certain skill or facet that week, and so that was just, it was amazing. Really good, really fun six months. To an extent, it was slightly cathartic, having just left my corporate job. And it's so hands-on. Yeah, and that was really a good way of, I guess it was kind of my, my crash mat, really, to be able to say, partly to myself and to my parents, like, oh, look, I've got a plan. I'm going to catering college. Um, whether that really, I think I also thought I was going to write a business plan and write some sort of, start some sort of scalable food business. Uh, and it's, well, I'm still waiting to write that plan. So. One thing. <laughs> Would you recommend going to a catering college after what you learned there? I think the answer is there's no right answer. Um, mm-hmm. For me, it worked, and that particular course worked because it wasn't structured. Like there were other catering colleges out there which had a much more regimented way of doing it which would be better for other people. I think I was, I was sort of 30 at the time. I feel like I've actually been cooking for 20 years before yeah. that. Do you know I mean? So I don't think I actually, there were some elements I didn't need to learn, but which are other courses I might have been like, oh, I don't need to learn this. And, and, and I would have been wrong. Yeah, of course. So then that's the one part that worked for me. I think that catering courses are good for many people because they provide a starting place for a network to whether you want to go and work in a food magazine or a restaurant or a, anything to do with food but many of them have good good links and good starting points that's true i do feel like after training at westminster you can't walk into a kitchen now without knowing somebody there yeah yeah it's and it's the classic kind of background route isn't it for most that doesn't know it's, it's the kind of place that trains really like sort of hotel and hospitality classic french training um but on the flip side i think there's also something to be said for saying if you really want to go and work in a restaurant uh, don't go, don't pay loads of money and spend six months not working there. Just yeah. go and get your knives. And, and, and there are the right now we're talking at a time when hospitality cannot uh, get enough people to recruit. You could go and if you're a good person, you work hard. You can go and start from the ground up in a restaurant, and you would learn a very different way of cooking very quickly. What you don't learn at catering college is efficiency uh, or speed of doing things, organisation within a team. It's yeah. more of a personal skill. Clean down your surface. There's nothing quite like being in the shit um, in a restaurant to make you learn how to cook faster. And frankly, and I haven't done enough of that to be a good restaurant chef. So if I was wanting to be that, then actually my, the core of my training would have come after Cajun College working in restaurants. Did you ever plan on working in big kitchens? I did. I mean, I think I did have this sort of vague, you know that thing, and you must have it, if anyone is listening who, who likes cooking and is thinking about moving into food, it's probably because they already like cooking and they have dinner parties or with their friends. One of their friends will say, oh, you should open a restaurant. Which is the classic question, classic piece of advice to someone who, you know, watches a bit of MasterChef and, and, um, and, and likes cookbooks. And, you know, maybe they should, but uh, there's so much in, in a restaurant that, that you, you should and could learn from other people. And I think that I, I don't think I was, I certainly wasn't naive to that, but I probably also thought that if I was going to open a restaurant, then I would be doing everything. And 10 years on and being in and out and involved in around hospitality, I kind of know... That how many people do many good things within just one single restaurant and I wouldn't now be going in with the concept that I would be the founder, the chef, the front of the house, the accountant, like there are so many things in there and so 
I think I probably thought that I might be a restaurant chef. And then when it came to the actual training, I mean, I'd left this job with crap hours, uh, but but good pay. And weekends were yours, and if they weren't, you could moan about it. I decided when I was 30 when I left that I was too old to work in a kitchen and or more to the point, not have my friendships. I didn't want to sacrifice a whole set of friendships um, by not working, by not seeing them on Fridays to, to Mondays because that's the core time to work in restaurants. So I did bits and pieces and I ran pop-up stuff and I, and I largely the restaurants off them sort of mutated into helping street food businesses, which sort of made more sense on my hours basis. Now looking back 10 years on, I sort of again wonder whether I should have worked as a restaurant chef for a few more years just as a background point. Everyone's journey is different, so... Absolutely, and you can't look back on it because you are where you are now because of everything. Um, one of my favourite questions to our chefs is, do you have any funny stories from the kitchens when you were, well, when you did work in them? Um, um, any pranks? Any pranks? No, I probably didn't work in chef, in in kitchens long enough to see pranks. Good. <laughs> there are a few sort of unrepeatable incidents, I think. <laughs> How traumatic are we talking? Yeah, actually, one of one of well, no, yeah, no, I won't. I won't do the traumatic ones. One of a quite, a quite funny one was, um, I think it might have been my first ever time in a profession. No, it wasn't my first. Uh, but we, I did like a little mini stage during um, the Westminster course with, at Galvin at Windows, um, and that, and the first day of that was uh, Valentine's Day. Now, if anyone's not doesn't know it, Galvin at Windows is is on the edge of Hyde Park. I don't know what, ten stories up. And there's a classic, if you, it's been around for a long time now, but if you looked at some sort of magazine saying where to go on Valentine's Day, it's like that classic Valentine's Day thing. And they, it's fun, it's absolutely their busiest day of the year. Um, they did something like 250, 300 covers at night. And it was my first experience in that kind of kitchen. And, um, and no one had any breaks all day. Uh, they all like worked and couldn't have started very early, ate no food. It was like, this is horrific. Mm-hmm. And about... 10 o'clock at night when they must have been on the second or third change of table you know an order came in for one of the starters which was it's not my taste but it was smoked salmon gold leaf and caviar and the person the person was like on, on the ticket it says you know allergies to gold leaf and caviar and that we sort of stopped the kitchen because a, i don't think you can be allergic to gold it's like an inert metal um and b they were like how the fuck do you know that caviar you're allergic to caviar how much caviar and gold have you had in your life to know that you're allergic to caviar. <laughs> so anyway, they just got a plate of smoked salmon. <laughs> yeah, that's the one thing you do see. Someone ordered an egg dish and said, won't eat visible eggs. Oh, yeah. Hilarious. <laughs> oh, God, the stories. So many stories from kitchens. Do you think they've improved since you worked in them? I did it at a time when, if there has been a change, nothing sure there has been. That was what was sort of happening. One, the actual first time I went to a kitchen was I worked with James Lowe and Isaac McHale in the pop-up called the Young Turks at the Ten Bells and this was like a time when amateur supper clubs were suddenly turning pro with like young chefs like them realizing they could change the typical ladder that they were on and start their new thing earlier in a more casual environment and that sort of coincided and they sort of also led this new Nordic British really good cooking people who've been working at the Ledbury, the Fat Duck, El Bully um, and Noma but turning their hands to British ingredients in a very, very casual, fun dining room. And so my, my, that was my first thing of a kitchen. So I actually got a really bad impression of it as like young people, they're quite working quite collegiately in a very small space, turning out amazing food 
um, and serving it with you know, great music. And if only that was the case. I think, though, that what they have done is they sort of led a way of having young chefs sort of thinking, I can do this, you know, I can start my own place. And, and therefore, then maybe they spent less, people are spending less time working in the, the classic one, two Michelin star places where they get absolutely beasted and, and, maybe, and maybe get indoctrinated yeah. with the way of treating other people. And so that, and along with, I think, there's more visibility of female-led kitchens, which just are nicer and better these days. I think people are very conscious and aware of work and life and treating people better. Whether that actually follows through when it comes down to having enough money coming through the till to pay people to have enough shifts with, again, coming out of the pandemic and people trying to recruit, the reality is that the people that are able to get staff and keep staff are the ones that that, have, that can afford the better working conditions. So we, we will see, I think, how everything is in about a year's time. We'll see, but it is looking up. There are so many young chefs now with massive mission star restaurants that know that they, they've seen it. They know the beginning stages and they don't want that to be repeated for young commies, which is mm. good. And people like yeah. Rav doing Counter Talk, um, mm. which is an amazing platform that has great jobs that are available in nice working conditions. They purposely get out the best kitchens. So check that out if um, anybody yeah. listening does want a job in the kitchen. That is a great place to go. I did want to ask you about the process of changing jobs when you were in your, how old are you, 30? When you decided to? Yeah, 30. Just, I think I sort of resigned shortly before I was 30. Yeah, and making such a major U-turn in your life at that age, especially, I know a lot of people in the pandemic are doing the same thing because they get to that age and then because of the pandemic, they've reevaluated what they want from life or what they want to be doing or they might need to change their job do you have any advice yep. for someone of a similar age that is going through a job transition as said on something already like everything is personal and there's no right way to do things i actually have some regrets about changing my job um I, i'm at a time now 10 years on when all my friends have continued not many of my friends continue now partners at big law firm huge companies and earning frankly more money than i ever will and it does make you sort of think oh do you know what i'm not sure and at the same time I'm very happy with what I've done I'm really happy that my work can involve you know writing cookbooks and you just sort of have to reevaluate what success means but um, I think at the time I took a very very dramatic step which happened to be because there's something that I'd always wanted to do working food and I just sort of thought if not now then when that sort of classic thing I don't think that I could have made a change if it hadn't been quite so dramatic yeah. and been such a big U-turn I think that looking back I could quite easily have been as happy taking more holidays than I did, uh, going to a smaller sized firm, thinking about what I wanted to do in probably uh, slightly more cautious steps. So I don't think the dramatic change is like I have done it and people look to me and think that's great. I don't think it's the only way to then subsequently find satisfaction in what you do. It just might be that there's a different angle as I was as a corporate lawyer, if I'd gone to a different thing, then maybe I might have done it. But Having said that caveat, if you were like, again, in my position, in a kind of more of a corporate salaried role and you want to do something different, I think the one piece of advice, two pieces of advice, I would say, thinking out loud, are I did this big jump. I think I probably could have done slightly babier steps. If, if you can't go part-time, then do weeks, holidays in the areas that you really wanted to work in. What I didn't know was whether I wanted to be a restaurant chef work in a, in a catering company working in a food magazine or as a food photographer as a stylist like I think I probably could have kept a finger in my job and got experience and then and then with that it wouldn't have been quite such a leap into the unknown and because everyone gets praised for leaping 
but I, I'm not entirely sure that you can't just get put your fingers out and get some experience and really work out what you want to do. And then what I would always say is that the people that I've admired the most since I've changed my job are the people that do one thing really well. You know, like people who become a love food but think I'm going to become a baker and start a bakery. Like they become amazing bread or concentrate on on being a restaurant chef or concentrate on being a food stylist having gone working in a in a magazine. So just a bit more focus than I may have maybe had. And the other thing is that if you're planning to do something that's entrepreneurial or self-employed, I think there's a lot to be said for seeing if you can get a partner to do it with. I think that it's very, very hard to do stuff on your own. So you can career change and go on a, you know, go to course and then get another job. That's that's one thing and that's definitely a thing something that people should look at. But if you're gonna go and think, I'm gonna go and take on the world, I'm gonna be self-employed and freelance, there's the people that often achieve stuff happen to do it in pairs. Um, it's very easy to one of one of you to be hardworking, one of you to be just that kind of person that doesn't hold you back and and say, yeah, let's go and do this. So, yeah, that's the kind of from my experience, and I say that because I am self-employed and because I did take a dramatic turn. So I guess that some of those things are things I would do differently. Does that make sense? No, that is honestly so fascinating, and I'm sure it'll be really, really useful for people to hear. And also interesting that you say to do one thing really well because mm. I feel like we're always taught you have to be good at everything and you have to be able to do butchery and pastry and this and that when really if yeah. you focus on one thing. Um, yeah, yeah. and there, there, are a lot, there are a lot of kind of well-repeated phrases like the do one thing well, I think, and it really means a lot. I think it's really worth thinking about. And the other thing is, um, have I heard Mel, Mel Gladrich, Goodrich, the, 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 um, from Mel and Sue, you know? Yes, um, yeah, yeah. She said a piece of advice on something I heard recently, which was don't expect everything to happen in one year because it might take 30 and so all the good things that might happen to you after a career change you can't you definitely there have been times when I've been frustrated and I've thought oh it's taking too long you know this is that and the other and I look back now 10 years on and think there wasn't a rush and actually I think you know I think it's good both in terms of expectations and happiness um, to to think of all your ambitions are not going to be fulfilled in a year there's, uh, it, t- it takes t- tens of thousands of hours to be an expert in something, doesn't it? And you just cannot do that in a year. And you cannot get all the luck in a year. And you... yeah. So, yeah, I think that's probably always a good thing to think Absolutely. about. Absolutely. And that's something to be said for people that are jumping jobs at any age and deciding to change your career. If the first year you think that it's not going well or if you're self-employed and you haven't got much freelance work in the first year, it does take time to build up. Yeah, and it, 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 it takes time to get the things. And, and I think you can be really frustrated with how things are going and opportunity or something will come to you which will make your life easier, like, you know, a steady income stream for three months. And you think, I, I, I couldn't take that because then I wouldn't have been able to do this. Or I, And, you know, three months goes by and like in a click of a finger, uh, and if your life would have been easier if you'd just done that boring thing for three months and no one's going to say, oh, they failed on their career change because they're earning money for three months. I think, you know, I think there's a lot to be said for just giving yourself a break, making your life easier. And, and like swallow your pride and just... Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think it's swallow your pride and just to, but also just tone down your expectations um, sometimes. I think it can be really tricky because just all that ever does is put a monster in your back and make you feel negatively about yourself. Absolutely. Such wise words. So I wanted to also ask, so you were running a blog, 
went to be a lawyer, changed career, trained. So where did you go on after that? So you did some stages, decided that kitchens weren't necessarily for you. Mm -hmm. What was your next step? So I, I mean, sort of in the immediate term, when I didn't write that business plan, but I knew that I didn't want to go and just go straight and work and straight through to kitchen, my business plan became just say yes. Because I had this blog, and this was a time 10 years ago, when the way that we consume Instagram and TikTok now, back then, Twitter was the social media of, of kind of uh, most use. Yeah. So I had actually quite a few readers and quite a notoriety is not the right thing, but people knew what I was doing. And I got, got emails saying, do you want to do this? Do you want to do that? And one of them was from a guy called Florian, who uh, suggested that we ran a pop-up restaurant um, where we got amateur supper clubs to come one or two nights a week in a space for a month which went really well it was also a nightmare it was over the, the uh, 2012 olympics so i kind of missed all the best part of literally like everything has been downhill hasn't it in, in britain since august 2012 it really has everything since august 2012 i'm, I'm and, convinced um, yeah <laughs> uh, and uh that was the peak and unfortunately i missed much of it because uh, i was working in, in my sort of restaurant and but as it happened we had some amazing people through it who continue to be connections in food like asma khan who's dodging express but that's her first ever supper club was there and we ran that and loads of other people um who've done gone on to do great things and who even, even if they haven't done that they're still just lovely people that happened and then i got an email saying oh i've got an, i've had an idea let's go for a coffee from a complete stranger who turns out now to be a friend she's a tv and commercial director and we i was the food consultant and assistant producer on the Raymond Blanc TV show for a bit and I basically just went like that I sort of jumped in and around different things experiencing food TV and experiencing well, having worked with asthma she was working with a street food brand and I sort of then sort of took over as a consultant of that and we ran that for a year and it kind of things just just rolled on and then all the time sort of doing more journalism and um, and recipe development for magazines and I think I just sort of realized that what I really enjoyed having said to my friends don't let me be a food writer because I won't earn enough money. I said um, that as well, and look where we are. Yeah, and then I just realised actually, I really enjoyed. I really enjoyed uh, documenting the best people in the industry that I love, whether they're a producer or an eater, and and developing recipes. And so I kind of thought, going back to what I've just said about doing one thing well, I need to stop being jack of all trades. I haven't really, haven't stopped being jack of all trades, but I, I need to try and just focus on the writing. And you know, if what I want to do is write a cookbook, at that point I thought the holy grail was to write a cookbook rather than write a cookbook that sells <laughs> that sells a number of cookbooks um, which is actually the holy grail which I haven't achieved yet um, uh, is uh, yeah I kind of concentrate on that and, and fairly soon after that I actually by, by luck and by chance did get a book deal for my first cookbook and I think from then on it's been by and large cookbook writing um, I have worked in other bits and pieces around the side but that's my focus which is it's just incredible the journey and the connections that you've made along the way that have helped you with where you are now. I mean, obviously that and your skill as an amazing recipe writer. How would you say connections, they've helped you, but how have you sustained them? Because I think it's very easy for people to meet individuals in whatever field they're in, but it's difficult to make a long lasting yeah. connection and a yeah, good yeah. first impression. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure I always make good first impressions. I'm quite grumpy. There are a few things I've tried one of which, I don't know whether it's my saying or whether it's also the cases as well, don't be a dick. Um, and, you know, I think lots of people get lots of opportunities to meet lots of people, but you can really rub people up. And, and, and what you don't realise at the time is that it is people, everything comes down to people. And it's, so it would be easier to say, let's go with this person for this freelance job 
then start the whole process again. You like you might think you're the best person for something, but actually there's so many facets to it. And if you happen to have been a nice person when you met them or a nice person in your emails, then you're going to have a better opportunity because it comes down to that individual person who might be having a terrible day. They might be needing to go on holiday. There are loads of things. And so don't be a dick. Um, yes. Uh, uh, also, and that sort of link to that is treat people, everyone, and hopefully I abide by this. I'm sure it isn't always the case, but everyone everyone on the way up was it what's the phrase you treat everyone on your way up as you would on your way down or, or something like um you know what I mean? yeah no i know exactly what you mean but... yeah the, the other thing i take from that is um the person you see that you're nice to that you think is irrelevant might four years time be the person that you're negotiating with for a massive job that, that will change your life you know and and so it all comes down to being a good human really doesn't it but i guess behind that is there are some <laughs> strategic thoughts as well <laughs> and, and then other network things that you do also have to put yourself and i'm not very good at this there are other people who are much better at putting themselves forward for things and this i guess is the same whether you're in a structured career path or you make it up as you go along people work most people don't know about you it's something that's quite useful to think about and most people are not going to be offended if you send you essentially cold call them saying i do this i'm good at this i see you do that can i help oh yeah always you have to have to look out for yourself my first book was called on the side and that came out in 2017 and i did as i said i think when you everyone who aspires to write cookbooks aspires to write a cookbook without thinking of what happens next and um you kind of shoot you see you only ever hear success stories i think with sales you see the ones that sell absolutely huge numbers hundreds of thousands of copies and frankly that very very few cookbooks do that so my cookbook came out and that was great and I'd had lots of festivals lined up which was really excellent from the PR people and I went to do one of the National National Trust maybe at um, Blenheim Palace they had a big sort of farming event and the country file were there and hundreds of thousands wanted to watch Matt uh, what's his face um, oh Matt and it, Matt and his dog yeah so he'd just done one street come dancing as well as me so that was <laughs> anyway so I went to the, the food stage I got there a bit early and there was a shop next to it with our books in and I was like, great Mine was piled up, and it was very early day, so it was empty. But uh, that felt great, and I said to her, the lady, oh, I, was, I, was just, I was trying to be nice, I was trying not to be a dick. <laughs> and I said, uh, oh, wow, that, that's, my, that's my book, actually. Has anyone, anyone bought any of them? You know, how's, it, how's it going? And she went, yeah, just asking. And she went, no, nobody knows who you are, do they? <laughs> <laughs> and it was a good, just a really good reminder of, um, you know, you do unfortunately have to really put yourself because uh, no, no one, <laughs> no one knows who you are, uh, and, no, and that's not a bad thing. Um, but it's just the reality. It's just the reality that if you are changing career, moving out there, you unfortunately have to, to network and put yourself out there, and don't be afraid to make a fool of yourself. Absolutely, but that is just the way with food writing. It, it takes a long time to get into, and for people to know who you are and know that your recipes actually mm, work and totally. what your basis is how did you find the whole book writing situation and did you get an agent I did get an agent I actually had a couple of approaches when I was early on in my kind of career change might even even before I changed career actually because I'd sort of got nominated for an award or something they sort of follow those lists and try and do that I kind of I'm actually now on my third agent agents tend to if anyone's listening that's looking for a book, book deal you do kind of need an agent to open doors for you. Agent in book writing terms is called a literary agent. That's li- literally all they are. They they represent you for your book and they help you put a proposal together in a way that will be a, hopefully appealing to publishers and they negotiate the, the bits that English people don't like to do 
um, with negotiators the money. Yeah. Um, they will not. They will not find you something that isn't going to happen. I think. Does that make sense? So with cookbooks, it's uh, and this must be the same in other careers as well. It's a massively saturated market. Um, there are loads and loads, probably too many cookbooks every year. And to be blunt, publishers want books that are going to sell on the shelves. And unfortunately, the best cook, but you might have the best proposal in the world. And I felt this at the time with lots of things. But if and the famous thing is, if you haven't got a platform, um, they probably won't get a book deal, unfortunately. And the, that then follows you to what I've also touched on, is that the Holy Grail is not writing that cookbook. The Holy Grail is selling that cookbook. And if you look at the charts, you basically have to be famous because you're on television to really sell a book. And most of those cookbooks are diet books. It kind of, that is just life, unfortunately. And so the literary agent is very helpful. Um, and hopefully, if you do speak to a literary agent, they're also realistic with you. You know, I think, I think my first agent, we never really talked about what was going to happen. We didn't talk about money. We didn't talk about the realities, I think. It was just like, yeah, we can make a great cookbook. And I think that if you can ever speak to someone who is honest with you, um, because that's literally the, the point of the agent is to provide feedback and, and, and exactly do that Absolutely. small part of your journey of the book with you. So being honest and understanding the process mm-hmm. and understanding the realities. It's another world, really, writing a cookbook that people don't understand how it all works mm. and how royalties work and how, so you get an advance before you write the cookbook. Yeah, yeah, this is, this is the thing. I think this is whether you're a cookbook author or, or any author. You get an advance, um, which is usually broken down into three parts, when you're basically on signing, or a few months after signing, if you push them for a quick payment, uh, uh, on delivery of the, of the project and then on publication. Advances are not very, generally, and from my experience, they're not very big. You need to have another job to support you, which means you also need to fit your cookbook writing into times around which... You know, you're doing your other work. And then what happens is that advance is not free money, that's advance. Well, it is, it is your payment. Um, and if you, never, if you never sell any books, you don't have to give your advance back. But you do have to sell enough books to cover your advance before you ever get any money ever again. If you're really smart, you have a really sellable cookbook that uh, has only 50 recipes in, 50, 25 of which are really easy and you can do off the top of the head and just test. And, you know, it's like a two-month job, in and out, great. Sell a few hundred thousand, you know, quiz in. Whereas, how many recipes are in Crave? Well, Crave's are just over 100. On the side was like 140, and uh, Borough Market was like 140 or something. And it's kind of, you, you obviously are writing, testing, generally doing a lot of washing up, yes. uh, liaising with other people, hopefully, if you're getting them to test it for you. You then do the photo shoots, which um, if they have other stylists as well, you're not paid for. There's then publicity. You know, I spend far too much of my life trying to publicise and shout about my book because I realise now that if you don't, you don't sell any. Um, and you know, hopefully that will that will all come back in the positive. Of course. But yeah, yeah, the the kind of the actual economics of, of cookbooks, unless you're massively successful, um, they don't really stack up for the author. And it's definitely something that I don't personally see that as a moaning point. I think it's just the reality of the system. That's the reality of the publishers. Whilst it feels like they don't do anything, they have employees. They have they have lots of there are lo- there are loads of costs for them to put a cookbook on, and they probably lo- they probably lose money on more of them then they make money, but hopefully they will have a couple that make money for them every year. That means they can, then they can take a punt on others. But it's, it's just the reality of the situation. Yeah, no, absolutely. It completely does. I think for anyone listening that does want to get into writing, it's good to know because I think people always assume that you'll make so much money releasing a cookbook when really um, it's a lot of work. 
Um, but amazing, amazing that you can put that out into the world and that people can cook your recipes yeah. and get joy from them. Yeah, I, and I always think the actual best way to think about cookbooks, and it's not how I think about it, but the people that I think will have the most satisfaction with it if they will aspire to write cookbooks, if they're particularly if they're a chef in a restaurant or going to be like is it's it's something that sits alongside the rest of the work that you do you see lots of restaurant cookbooks out there and actually what they are are marketing material you start to realize that that's that's how these things are you then realize or you know if it's not marketing material, it might be a famous person and just an adjunct to their television program there's always a reason behind them yeah and it's kind of get if that's if you're if, if you're getting obsessed by writing whether it's a cookbook or poetry anthology or something it's good to just sort of take a brain check I have to do this myself. I don't want, I don't want no. to try not to come across as like, oh, only I can do this because I, I really can't. But it's just good to take a rain check on and stuff like that and, and to have these honest conversations about Completely. Um, the economics <laughs> and the work. But for anyone that doesn't want to write a book mm. um, but does want to get into food writing, um, mm. what path? Well, I mean, obviously there isn't a destined path and there isn't one set way. But yeah. what would you suggest if someone sat here was listening to this thinking, I'd quite like to be a food writer? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think I think the first thing to say, as I've said already, is there's no right answer. And also my way is no. not necessarily the right way. I sometimes think it's there are other ways that would have been better. So I'll come to that bit second. But the first thing that everyone should do if you really want to be a food writer is to start writing and to start cooking and to write things down and practice. Because... If I, if I try and look back at my pretty haphazard way into what I've gone to, it's actually the, the, the really useful thing is that I spent two years as a, as a lawyer and then another probably seven years regularly writing my, my blog. I have millions of words, you know, thousands of recipes whatever, on my personal blog, many of which are shit. Um, you, know, and if I, I, you know, when I did a purge of my blog, I've sort of, it's kind of been redone design-wise two or three times and you know, you then go back to the things that you first did and you think, God, oh, this is horrific. This is really not very good. And, and that's actually fine because you just got to practice. And the other good thing about blogs, and people always used to divide web, web blogs, you know, who's going to read this? It's like, well, it doesn't really matter, actually. And actually, um, it maybe it's probably better that people don't read it because it's really good that you can practice your prose if you want to be a prose writer. It's it practice. means that you can practice writing a legible recipe. So that's the kind of the first thing, if you do want to be a writer, and, and that kind of, I'm sure, covers any genre, not just cooking. Oh, absolutely. And to read cookbooks. Yeah, yes, exactly. Read and write. It's like, I think there are fundamentally things to do. And then you realise there are ways that recipes are written that are not haphazard. There is a structure. The second thing is the way that I would do it maybe differently now. And I think this might be what you're doing uh, or have done. To not think you can go alone and then to get so therefore get experience in places that have been doing it forever. You know, I think, I think that that comes down to not thinking you can get anywhere quickly, you know, getting experience, learning from the people and learning from uh, an institution that's been writing recipes in a certain order and with a certain standard, with an ability to test things. Like I think that I, you also then create the networks and the connections that you were talking about by, by starting that night's use for it at the bottom and working with people and learning from them and working up and learning what you get, you might actually find it like it. There are lots of things. So I think if you, if you're able to, then a job at Good Food or Delicious or, you know, if you're in America, Bon Appetit would be amazing, wouldn't it? Like there's an opportunities come from those things as well. So I think that if I did it again, I, I, I did, um, yeah. Yeah. I did lots of pop-ups and helped a guy called Danny McCubbin, who was, used to work with Jamie Oliver a lot. And very early on, Danny was like, oh, the, the Jamie food team are looking for 
help. And I think I, I think frankly, I was probably a bit arrogant actually. But I don't need that. I don't need to go. I don't need to go and work as a as an employee at, at Jamie to do what I want to do. I've got a blog. And, um, in fairness, you didn't. <laughs> well, I don't know. I think I think I probably should. I think that looking back, that's one of the one things I thought. You know what? I think I should have gone and, and tried to work with other people and learn from them. And I, and I say that I, was, I don't even think it was. I had I didn't have a particularly long thought about it. I just thought that thank, that sounds like a good opportunity. But next week I've got to go on a press trip to Singapore. Of course, no, of course. Things happen so quickly. But I think I think that getting experience with an institution would have been good for me. Or helping helping someone food style or helping someone test recipes. I think that yeah, just knowing your own knowing that you can learn is really it's really good. Completely. Oh, that's such great advice. Of course, you can learn from people, you can go and work experience mm, and you can definitely. help people on shoots and there are so many things that you can do. Mm. So before you leave us, I have a few questions from some friends and some people that love your recipes and some of them are quite interesting so i think you've touched on this earlier one of them says what is your ultimate craving in the morning for i've had too many glasses of wine the night before well i'd say i think the, the, the bunch has and what that's probably like a lunch thing and i've probably been up earlier before that my um yeah what would you have in the morning this this sort of if, if i was to be horrifically cheesy and put this into one of the flavor profiles of my book so it's called, it kind of comes under the rich although not very savory this is the only thing that my dad has ever passed on to me culinary wise which is uh marmite and honey on toast so you've got to butter the the toast as soon as it comes out of the toaster and it's already getting on the edge of burnt loads of butter whilst it's melting more marmite than you put on even if you you know and even if you don't like marmite you've got to try and then honey on top so that it's melts over it it's still hot enough to melt into it so it's all about temperature and texture but also then you get that salty sweet thing and i think that um you need you need the sweetness of the honey to curb your hangover but the richness of the marmite is um pretty good so yeah that's my hangover match this is amazing i'm definitely having that the next time i have one too many with a good coffee absolutely completely (laughs) so we've got one here that says please explain the concept of the banana tiramisu it blows my mind okay so uh i did a i did a pre-order bonus book for um people who got crave before it was out and um it's like an ebook and at the end of that, I, I, I deliberately did a slightly cheesy, hopefully attention-grabbing dessert, which is banana misu, tiramisu with bananas in it. Um, and that was the concept of that is, again, it fits in the, one of my sections, which is cheesy and creamy. There's not much more creamier or cheesy than a mascarpone, but also also cheesier in a kind of, the, oh, that's pretty cheesy to have something called banana misu. Con- comes on the back also of the pandemic where everyone was baking banana bread or going to restaurants and buying that's tiramisu. True take a picture on his Instagram so I just thought I'd match them what it is just a really good I think tiramisu uh, with a bit of booze in it um, but also in the middle is a layer just one layer of bananas sliced thinly on a length with uh, dolce de leche spread over them so you've got this kind of thing and it's not it's not a banoffee pie so they're not two layers it's specifically a tiramisu with a, cheese, with a little banana in the middle so that's the concept was basically being a bit cheesy but it's also really delicious, so that's fine. It sounds absolutely incredible. Oh my gosh, so amazing. And the last one says, what is your summer comfort food? Winter comfort food is obviously easy, but mm. um, she struggles in the summer. What would you normally go for? I suppose my kind of retreat in summer ends up being chilly and heat. The reason why would I want comfort in summer, like a bad day, uh, hangover, I think the thing that probably fits that category 
of, of spice and comfort is um, there's a this is barely a recipe uh, in the book, so I'm happy to give it out <laughs> instant noodles, but spicy like hot instant noodles, but pimped up with induya in it. So induya is a is a, is a spreadable fully cured sausage from Calabria, about fifty percent pork fat and fifty percent uh, fresh Calabrian chilies. Um, what that does is it thickens the broth of an instant noodle, so it's more like a normal ramen, or it's the type of ramen, but also like just pumps up the, the heat. And um, I think that that's the kind of thing, with all whatever accoutrement, whether you want to then have your instant noodles with like a soy egg and lots of pickles, or I quite like it with, what is this going to well, I like it with instant cheese, like uh, American cheese draped over. Have you ever had instant noodles like that? I have never had them like that. Yeah, do it. It's it's surprisingly good. Surprisingly good. Um, so yeah, get you get some pickle or kimchi in there as well, yeah. and then dra- drape over some horrifically cheap, terrible American cheese, sliced cheese. Sounds like the dream. And that that will sort out all of your, your problems, comfort needs in summer, because also you're then going to sweat away all your problems. Gold. Oh, what. A- what a way to finish. I must try those noodles. That sounds life-changing, to be honest. Amazing. I mean, that and the rest of the recipes in Crave, but specifically <laughs> the cheese on the noodles. Cheese and noodles. <laughs> We've taken anything away from this podcast. It will be that. Yeah, yeah. Please that and, it. obviously, your amazing life of career moves. Thank you for coming on. Thank you. I'm sure everyone's learned so much. So thank you. Well, thank you for having me. And big congratulations for Crave. Cheers, Lucy. Thank you. What a journey! As well as ramen noodle tips, I really hope that you've taken away some important lessons from Ed's story, especially if you're thinking of diving into a new career. I can't thank Ed enough for being so humble and honest about his journey. You can find him on Instagram or his website, both of which are Rocket and Squash, and I'm Baking the Liberty on Instagram. Join me next week where I'll be chatting to none other than the principal at the Royal Ballet, the legend. Stephen McRae. Thanks for listening and if you did like this episode please leave us a review on iTunes it really helps in making people aware about the podcast. You want interesting stories hear hilarious tales a cook in a glory wondrous successes and epic fails celebrity run-ins all the gossip and tea Set your back and call when you're taking the liberty. Yes, you're taking the liberty when you're talking with liberty.